Hello, and welcome to MTC Audio Lab, brought to you by Melbourne Theatre Company. MTC Audio Lab is theatre for your ears, bringing great dramatic texts to life with some of your favourite stage actors. Melbourne Theatre Company acknowledges the Yalakut Willem peoples of the Bunwarung, the first peoples of country on which these recordings took place. We pay our respects to all of Melbourne's first peoples, to their ancestors and elders, and to our shared future. In this episode, MTC Associate Artistic Director Sarah Goods speaks with MTC Literary Associate Jennifer Medway about directing Turn of the Screw. Uh, hi everyone, welcome to this question and answer session with uh, Associate Artistic Director of Melbourne Theatre Company, Sarah Goods. Um, my name's Jenny Medway and I'm the Literary Associate and we're talking about The Turn of the Screw by Henry James, which Sarah has adapted and brought to life for MTC Audio Lab. So I wanted to start by asking you when you first came across this story, when did you first read it? Well, I first read the story when I was at the Sydney Theatre Company and I was working on a play called uh, The Splinter by Hilary Bell. And um, one of her influences when she was writing that play was Turn of the Screw. Um, And so I read it and was just, I'd never read anything like it. So I was really captivated by it and um, and it had a huge influence on on that production. and so it had stayed in my head ever since. Um, and then once something like that, just because he, the way he, he's kind of master of language and of suspense, um, you start to realise just how influential that book is. And, um, and then I realised that um, it actually, pretty much every 10 years someone uses that novella uh, to make another film. Um, and I wrote down a list of them, and this is just some of them, but there's The Haunting of Helen Walker, The Nightcomers in 1972, there's an opera in 1974 by Benjamin Britten, The Innocents with Deborah Kerr in 1961, The Others with Nicole Kidman who was influenced by it, and then there's one out this year called The Turning with uh, Finn Wolfhard in it. Um but I just started to think, what is it about it that is so um, captivating and this kind of endless well of inspiration for people in this kind of gothic or suspense genre? And did you, have you figured it out? <laughs> I think, well, the, the great thing about this is that you can never figure it out. It, a mystery has to be eternally mysterious. And I think that's what the magic of this piece is. Um, but I think it was the first, well, one of the reasons people keep coming back to it is it's this incredible example of the unreliable narrator and you stay with this uh, character until you start to realise at, at whatever point or you don't agree at all that um, that they're not of sound mind. Um, but I think the way that he writes and the way he builds suspense is through stillness and quiet. There's there's these beautiful lines in the piece where he talks about the figures being swallowed by the silence from which they appeared or that the stillness um, 
was sort of unbreakable or they sailed into silence and all of these kind of really interesting ways he tilts and plays with time and and quiet so things actually rhythmically slow down to a pace where you I don't know you your heart rate and you become aware of your own heart rate and breath and then he's able to kind of slam it into another gear and come around the corner very clever yeah and because it's been done so those, those are film and opera and it's there's a stage version as well it's been done for the stage before I think yeah I think so yeah. well, that might have been the opera Oh, I see. Yeah. And do you know of any other radio adaptations of it? No, but you can, um, you know, there's the audio book version of it. It's very, I actually found the challenge of adapting it very challenging. Oh, right. (laughs) Can you talk us through that a little bit? Because he writes in these sentences that go for like six lines, you know, they are (laughs) unbelievable. Um, and I found that really challenging because in a way, halfway through, I felt like I could hear him sniggering in the corner. Like he'd, when he'd written it, he'd said, I'm going to prevent people from making cuts to this piece in the future because he'll mention something in a very long sentence on one page and you think, oh, we can get rid of that. And then three pages later, they refer back to that moment. And so you'd have to go back and reinsert it because it didn't make sense. It's so, so intricate. It was very yes. intricate. <laughs> he, or he talks about there's this great line where he talks about the strange and sinister embroidered on the everyday is how he liked to approach um, this genre of suspense. Um, and actually it's a really great way of describing how he writes. It's very intricately woven. And when you pull one thread, all sorts of things start to unravel. Um, so I found adapting it very, very difficult. But I guess what's lovely is um, this medium does allow for us to really sit with and appreciate that language, you know, obviously as well as reading, but for just to get that focus around the words. Oh, yeah. Um, did you have any – so in the end, uh, the version that um, we hear that you've put together – did you have any particular approaches? Did you make? Did you have to lose any particular moments or characters? Or no, I didn't. I didn't do that because when I looked at doing that, it undoes the magic of the piece, and the magic of the piece really is that in those long sentences, you enter into how that woman's mind is unraveling, which means that these these long sentences allow you to feel what it was like to be her, where she she deliberates over a moment where she goes, it could have been this or it could have been that, but maybe it was this and I decided to do that. And if you start streamlining that, you lose the complexity of of a psychological state and that's really important to the piece it's interesting because it's a, a it feels like a a novel novella that's been discussed so much for its um you know the interpretation possible interpretations of it and i know that certainly you can't work from a state of pure ambiguity when you're actually performing something did you um come to a decision as a creative team about anything I mean I guess the big thing is um that's been talked about so often is you know does this character does this governess uh um is she going mad or is are there ghosts you know like the validity of whose whose reality is 
Well, I think at work. I think it, what's so interesting is it's being read out by the governess, but it's her her entry after the event. So one of the things we did talk about is that you have to believe her and it has to be her reality. But in the writing of it, in a way, she's validating, she has to validate her choices that she made. So it has to be her truth mm. because if it isn't at the end, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a real guilt alive in the piece, both for the housekeeper and the governess, I think. Um, but you do absolutely have to believe in her in her truth and the ghosts, I think. Mm. And then it can be whatever you want it to be it's certainly, at the end of it. Yeah, it certainly feels um, an interesting approach to not lean into the idea of female hysteria as I think a lot of interpretations did very early on and her as a kind of mad woman in the attic kind of thing. Um, but to just think about the validity of this um, lurking evil and what that might be. and Well, I think also, you know, what it does capture by not sort of adapting it or cutting it back is just the lack of autonomy she had. You know, she was a woman from a, you know, a, a poorer family. She's given this incredible opportunity by a very good-looking, dashing man who she has a crush on. Um, and she wants to prove her worth. You know, she's been given this responsibility. The only bit of agency she's really been given in her life. Um, uh, and she wants to do the right thing, you know. So that part of the story was really important to keep in there as well. Mm -hmm. The sense that one of the reasons why she doesn't get help earlier on is because of wanting to prove that that worth to a man who she's met, who she's kind of quite taken by. Mm. And um, I guess that's been the deal is that she um, takes upon this job and doesn't bother him. And yes. She wants to prove she can do it. Yes. And what about... To impress him. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and what about the play, I guess, did you feel speaks to now the most as you kind of went through and adapted it and as you recorded it? Um, well, I just think it's, I mean, it's it's the psychological state that we all find ourselves in of isolation or um, of, of, where, of fear and anxiety and of uncertainty is that ability of um, what our minds can do, you know, the power of them. And I think by the end of this piece, when you realise what she's done or has the potential to have done through um, through this, it's, it's devastating, you know. Um, and so I think it's incredibly relevant in that sense of the claustrophobia of it, the anxiety of it and um, the, the power of fear. And, and once you let that fear into your mind, what it has the ability to make anyone do, really. Mm. Um, yeah, I guess especially in a time when there's a lot of uncertainty, it's interesting to think as well about these narratives that kind of do speak to, yeah, a very uncertain world. and Exactly. A, and um, une unexplainable in some ways or unprovable or, you yeah. know, things are slipperier now. Exactly. And when, when we were working on the Splinter Up um, at the Sydney Theatre Company, the the that title came from the idea of once a splinter has lodged itself in your brain, like once the seed of doubt has been lodged in your brain, 
it can then grow into quite monstrous proportions, you know, mm. um, and um, and that's an incredibly dangerous um, process, I think. Mm. There's something interesting um, I find in the idea of this governess um, that wanting to protect people as well that feels quite, you know, even just that idea of um, with your own children or young people in your life, the idea of wanting to protect them from the dangers of the world and your ability or feeling of success or failure based on that. I think that's incredible. Yeah, exactly. Because I think one of the, what's the word for it? Um, it's not a vigilante, but she talks about holding vigil over them at night and, um, and, and wanting to save them, wanting to catch them before they go over the edge, that kind of catcher in the rye idea as, of, as well, of wanting to protect their innocence mm. and um, and how that kind of vigilant thing can tip so easily over into something very damaging. Mm. But the intention is self-appointed saviour of someone or of someone's your perceived innocence of that person. Mm. Yes, and whether you're right to put yourself in that position or not. Or you're, or exactly, and she way. constantly talks about putting herself between the, the children and the ghosts mm. and that she will take whatever it uh, it takes to, to be that kind of force field, I guess, to protect them. Mm -hmm. But what that then leads to is um, so devastating. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and um, in terms of, I guess, creating the world, because, you know, obviously your main bulk of your artistic work is on the stage. Mm. So to bring it into this radio space, what did you find were the biggest shifts you had to make in order to create, um, I guess, the world without any visual kind of reference for us? Or Well, it's the voices of the actors and, you know, the group of actors on this uh, have such incredible voices, such powerful voices. And um, and Kath Tonkin, I remember having a great, very funny conversation with her where I was telling her about the piece and said, you know, the, the challenge is these very long sentences. And she said, I love a long sentence. <laughs> and uh, she, her ability to kind of um, do, uh, hold that language and, and decipher the, the, the rhythms of those long sentences was incredible, as it was for, for all of them. But I knew it needed a certain um, tone vocally and then also with the music. So working with Clem Williams, who I've worked with before, um, that we just kept talking about how do you amplify the silence? So how do you introduce sounds that are kind of vibrating in the space so that when you take them out, you actually lean into that silence, which is something I love doing in the theatre. Um, that feeling when I always call it, I remember having a Kelpie dog that was asleep on the bed one night and I was on my own and all of a sudden he was sound asleep and they just woke up and their ears went up <laughs> and they were listening and it's that idea of listening like animals yeah. and they could hear something that I couldn't hear. And then when it passed, they just lay down and went to bed again. And I thought, that's what you want in the theatre. And also what's so beautiful about radio plays is you can create that atmosphere of actually hearing something that isn't there mm. and the alertness of that and what a f fabulous feeling that is. 
And what were the, I guess, what was the practical process of, of kind of making this together? So did you, um, did were you were speaking with um, Clem Williams from an earlier point, I'm imagining? Yes. And did she come into the... Um, to the sound studio when the actors were working or was it kind of... No, interestingly, she wasn't able to come in when we were in the studio, but she was in for the two days rehearsal we had. And we've been having long conversations before then, during then, and then after then, and while she's um, cutting it together now. Well, she's already done that now. (laughs) (laughs) And practically, I guess, too, you know... It's much more difficult to make work now, obviously, because of lockdown. And mm. at the time you were recording, it was probably just coming out of that initial lockdown period. What kind of things did you have to all do in order to make that environment kind of um, safe for everyone? Well, because there were only four people, it was quite easy just to vocal, you know, to have the microphone set up at a safe distance and. Um, and to have the breaks when we needed to have them. But it, what was interesting was that all of the requirements that we had to fulfil in order to do it were completely um, overshadowed by the joy of being together and creating something together. It was, you know, it's, it, I think it's incredibly isolating, difficult time for, um, for everyone in the industry, but particularly actors, I think. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So the the yes, the luxury of doing it was outweighed the um, yeah yeah precautions. Yeah, and so I guess to kind of finish off, um, I wondered if there's anything. I guess what's the main thing you'd like people to take away from it um, when they listen to the to the full story. I think I think just the power of language and the and. Um, the incredible instrument that is the voice of actors, you know. I think um, we can all do podcasts, we can all record, everyone has a voice and everyone can use a voice, but there's there's a certain um, power of, um, you know, actors' voices with certain text. And, and also the I, – I think one of the things that um, this period of our, our lives is has sort of highlighted – is um, how your imagination can be so engaged with so little, um, you know, that we get inundated by Netflix, by this constant stream of things, but actually taking the time to take the less is more, and, and which I think is a kind of, you know, a movement that's been going on for a while. But I think the, the power of drama, audio drama, is that it's, it can all exist in... You know, it's the meeting of these beautiful voices, these beautiful words, and your imagination that these entire worlds can be created, and um, and it's an old, beautiful art form. And this is a very old piece. You know, it was written in 1898. Mm-hmm. Um, but how he plays with time, and I think our relationship with time over this period has changed as well. That sense of slowing down and of listening deeply, and um, that. Um, you know, they're incredible things to experience at the moment, which we probably wouldn't be doing right now if this hadn't happened. Mm. So I really wanted to find something that gave people that experience. Um, uh, um, Yeah, because, you know, 
it, it's such an old piece, but it's still so incredibly vital in terms of um, the power of the atmosphere it creates. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to MTC Audio Lab. The Turn of the Screw by Henry James was directed by Sarah Goods, with performances by Lawrence Boxall, Mark Downey, Robert Menzies, and Catherine Tonkin. Sound design, engineering, and theme music by Clements Williams. Produced by the team at MTC. Enjoyed this series? Find more Audio Lab episodes or learn how you can support Melbourne's home of theatre at mtc.com.au.